0: We're in front of 113 million people, so if there's one time when you're actually gonna spend money on a marketing campaign on linear television, the Super Bowl is probably the way to do it.
1: Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Tuesday, February 14th. Happy Valentine's Day, everyone. Today, Dylan Byers is here to talk about the most durable media spectacle in the country, the Super Bowl. How many people watched? What do the ratings mean? How powerful is the NFL as a media player? And most importantly, what did Dylan and I eat while watching the game? And later, Bill Cohan recounts the extraordinary origins of the Redstone family saga, and a new book about shared Redstone that provides clues to the future of the Paramount Media Empire. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Tuesday, everybody. We are now couple days removed from the Kansas City Chiefs defeating the hated Philadelphia Eagles in the Super Bowl. It's hard not to like Patrick Mahomes. But this is not a sports podcast, but we do like to talk about the business of sports. And the business of sports is a media story in a big way. We talk about this stuff a lot here at Puck. So I'm joined today by Dylan Byers. Dylan, what were the ratings for the Super Bowl this year? Was it a big one? They were great. They fully reinforced...
0: The familiar talking point that sports and sports rights are what keep the linear bundle alive. Uh, They were 113 million, which is, uh, I believe, the highest in five or six years. Mm. And again, just you know this as well as anyone. We do not live in a monoculture right now. We do not live in a monoculture politically. We do not live in a monoculture culturally. Mm. We do not live in monoculture in terms of the news we consume or whether or not we consume news at all. And yet here once a year in early February is this, this event that is sort of far and away, whether you are a member of, you know, whether you're a citizen of America, whether you're an advertiser trying to reach consumers, uh, whether you are an artist uh, such as Rihanna mm-hmm. trying to, uh, to to sell albums. This is the thing in America. It still very much is. And as much as the number of households with cable subscriptions continues to go down, we continue to turn out every year to watch this event. look the the NFL deals have been sold for the next almost a decade. Mm-hmm. But if you're thinking about things like the NBA rights that are coming up, you're thinking about other sports and whether or not to invest in them. I think this is a very, significant case for the enduring power of sports in our lives and for the foreseeable future sports that are going to be largely consumed by very traditional methods.
1: So just uh, as a fun exercise, I pulled up the most watched primetime telecast of 2022 last year. Total viewers. Number one from last year, Super Bowl, about 100 million, so not as much as, as this year. Number two on the list, NFC Championship. Number three on the list, AFC playoff game. Then below that, NFC Playoff, number five, NFL Playoff, AFC Wild Card, on and on and on and on and on. I'm scrolling down here, again, on Variety, of the highest-rated primetime shows. We have the Winter Olympics showing up at number 10. Uh, they got about 20 million viewers back in February of last year. I'm just looking for something that's not sports programming. Okay, down at number 23, <laughs> the Oscars yeah. did pretty well yeah. last year, 17 million. Down, 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 down finally. Okay. Yellowstone season 4 episode 10. 13 million viewers. Number 32 on the list of right. <laughs> highest viewed shows last year. It's all sports man. Then you get into World Series, NBA Finals. That's such a dominant force in our culture and our media.
0: It it really is and I think two things stand out from what you said and there's a similar if you if you do this for for the history of television itself, I think I read this recently, 24 out of 25 of the most watched things on television were sports and but for i, I believe the the series finale of mash uh, that would be a clean sweep two things stand out one it is a testament to the enduring power of sports it is also really a testament just to the enduring power of football In this culture, because it is like before so much of of what you just read, it's football, football, football all the way down. And then eventually you get to things like basketball and the Oscars. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think what I wonder now, just again, because the football rights have been locked up for so long, is there a reasonable bet to also be made on other sports that perhaps don't do as well, but still have a lot of growth potential? And I think that's why I come back to thinking about the NBA. One calculation that media companies are making vis-a-vis sports rights is how big is the audience, but also is it worth it? Because every time the rights come up for renewal, the ticket price for these media companies sometimes doubles, right? Or at least it increases significantly. And you have to make this calculation, which is, are we willing to spend so much money to get these viewers because not just to, to bring viewers in on a Sunday for football, but because mm-hmm. we can then market the rest of our shows sort of across the week. And is that something that still works even in a world where people don't watch television as much as they used to? NBA rights are coming up in a, a year or two. I think that's going to be a really interesting question. I think a lot of the traditional media companies are going to be at the table, even as they indicate that maybe it's not worth it anymore. I think we're going to see Turner there again. I think we're going to see Disney and ESPN there again. Uh, We're just getting reports out this week that NBC is going to come back to the table for NBA. Mm -hmm. And I'm not old enough to remember, but some people will be old enough to remember that the NBA really got its start on NBC in a big way in terms of television. So yeah, it's just sports. It's sports all the way down.
1: Uh, NFL Sunday ticket is coming to YouTube TV next year, you mentioned there are some streamers out there that might be trying to buy NFL. This might be an obvious question, but is the Super Bowl always going to be a broadcast television thing? Like, it's never going to, like, be on Amazon or Apple or YouTube, right?
0: No, it will be. I I would argue that it will be. I just, it's going to be a very long time before it is. I I think this is, uh, whenever we talk about the sort of trajectory of television right now, we are talking about a very long and slow and painful death. But the death is sort of inevitable, and we will get there. And, you know, at this moment, what we're seeing is, you know, first, Amazon sort of dips its toe into the world of NFL and sort of is sharing Thursday nights with Fox and NFL Network. And then next thing you know, they become sort of the exclusive home for Thursday night football. Uh, And even then you don't really need it because oftentimes the worst games of the week are Hmm. on Thursday nights. But these are all penny anties, right? And as you move year after year, we're going to see the Amazons, the Apples, the Googles eat up a bigger and bigger chunk of that pie. And I think we'll get there in a way that feels very transitional and sort of um, makes everybody happy by allowing the biggest possible total addressable market to be reached in various sports. But yes, I, I firmly believe that there will come a time at which we've finally, that the linear market has finally hit the ground floor, whatever that might be, 40 million, 50 million households, and the amount of people who have an Amazon Prime subscription or a YouTube TV subscription uh, or or even Apple TV Plus uh, will have gotten to a point where the league will feel like it's ready to step up and give the exclusive rights for the Super Bowl to a streamer. I don't think that's going to happen in this decade. But I think by the time we get to 2033, I would put my money on an Amazon Super Bowl.
1: One reason we talk about ratings around these things and this is true for lots of TV programming, but it's the ads and the Super Bowl ads, which are, you know, as much of a national pastime as the game itself. In this era where you have digital advertising, where you can swipe up in an app to buy a product and it's connected to your Apple Pay, blah, blah, blah. Um, what is the bang for the buck for advertisers during the Super Bowl these days? Is it just to like boost name ID, as we say in politics, like to be ran that mm-hmm. ad that made everyone think that like someone sat on the remote and like changed his channel and it was a pretty good yeah. spot. Um, and I've seen like a bunch of TikToks and stuff on social media today about Tubi and that seems like a win for them. Um, is it just sort of brand awareness at this point and, or has it always just been that?
0: Yeah, I think it's, I think it's always sort of been brand awareness. I mean, one of the interesting things that's happened with the, this moment that we're in is that The advertisers can see in a very specific, granular way who they are reaching online. And oftentimes those numbers are not terribly reassuring. Mm -hmm. The television uh, is sort of like newspaper, you know, print advertising sort of allows blissful ignorance. Well, the, this many people watch the show, this many people subscribe to the magazine, therefore we can sort of assume that we got in front of this many people. Well, right, except maybe you didn't because maybe some, maybe someone got up to go to the bathroom, maybe someone fast forwarded. Uh, this is sort of a moment, the one moment when advertisers can reassure themselves, okay, we're in front of 113 million people, that never happens anywhere, And on top of that, the whole culture around the Super Bowl right now is as much about the ads, the halftime show, the snacks around the game. It's the whole tradition of it. So if there's one time when you're actually going to spend money on a marketing campaign on linear television, the Super Bowl is probably the way to do it. Do they get that money back? I, I don't know. I think there are some ads that ran during the Super Bowl that nobody saw, nobody talked about, nobody really paid attention to. There are others that that sort of like hit, and you, you sometimes you don't even know what's going to hit from a creative perspective, but that's the thing that everyone's talking about the next day, and then that can have really legs. How quantifiable that is, I don't know, but I think in a way, that is sort of the appeal of it, because by not being able to fully quantify what the effect of that ad campaign is you can sort of assume the best possible outcome and justify the expense
1: and now we know that Tubi is a streaming service (laughs) last thing i want to ask you we know calories don't count on super bowl sunday katie made a feta and scallion dip that uh, was really good what was your favorite super bowl snack this year
0: well, this is, so I, we, we have the luxury of attending this party, uh, with our friends and they, oh, it's always thematic based on the teams, right? So there were Kansas city barbecue ribs on one side uh-huh. of the spread, and Philly cheesesteak sandwiches on the other side of the spread. I opted for something, um, agnostic to the game, which is just wings and nachos, uh, which for me is, uh, synonymous with football.
1: I love that. I love that. Um, yeah, we had some ribs too, which is great. All right, man. Talk soon. Appreciate it.
0: Okay. Thank you, Peter.
1: When we come back, Bill Cohan talks to Ben Landy about Sherry Redstone.
2: Welcome back to The Powers That Be. I'm Ben Landy here with Bill Cohan. Good morning, Bill. Hey, Ben. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about Sherry Redstone, who controls Paramount Global, formerly Viacom CBS, because this story has sort of been an obsession of all of ours, dating back to 2015, when you and I and John Kelly all worked at Vanity Fair. And Sherry's father, Sumner Redstone, the the media executive who created the whole entertainment empire, he was still alive. Since then, Sherry's taken control of just about everything. Sumner died in 2020. And now there's this new book out from James Stewart and Rachel Abrams at The New York Times that covers the whole saga. And this is all newly relevant, of course, because one of the big questions that is hanging over media these days is whether Sherry will ultimately sell CBS or Viacom or both. But just to go back to the beginning in 2015, 2016, when she was taking over, why did Sherry want to recombine CBS and Viacom into a single company in the first place?
3: Well, first she wanted, of course, to figure out a way to get back into the succession process of the company, uh, which she had basically been excommunicated from by her father, who really didn't want her to be his successor. And then, of course, the two women, Sidney Holland and Manuela Herzer, who I first wrote about in in Vanity Fair in 2015, who had become Sumner's Quote unquote girlfriends, and who systematically uh, not only were intent on enriching themselves, but making sure that Sherry had no role, no access to her father. And of course, by then, he had also sort of excommunicated his uh, and parted ways with his son. So if there was going to be any kind of family role in the future of CBS and Viacom, it was going to have to be Sherry who was definitely uh, far away from that possibility. Back then, my stories came out, plus with all sorts of you know additional revelations, uh, including that at the same time that Sydney Holland was supposedly Sumner's quote-unquote live-in girlfriend, she would take his plane uh, in the morning and fly off to Sedona, Arizona and have an affair with George Pilgrim, Uh, in Sedona (laughs) and then fly back to be uh, with Sumner at night. And so that was also another revelation. And so these things started building and building and, and Sherry saw her opening first to get rid of Sydney and then to get rid of Manuela and... To get back, we think, or we're told, into the good graces of her father, who, of course, by this time was pretty much all but comatose and, you know, unresponsive and, you know, needed round-the-clock care and feeding. He's in his late 80s at this point, right? Or he's in his 90s at this point and confined to home, round-the-clock care, and got to the point where people would tell me he had very little cognition. Uh, let alone the ability to sort of sign the papers that would make Sherry uh, his heir and successor. But next thing you know, these papers get produced, uh, including, you know, a signature on a key document that suddenly gave Sherry the ability to step in. Having gotten rid of the two women, taking over from her father, installing a board and a CEO at Viacom that she wanted and so she had sort of had half the puzzle figured out by that point. And then, of course, Les Moonvez, who uh, was the CEO of CBS, resisted emphatically the recombination of CBS and Viacom that Sherry wanted to do, taking it so far as enlisting Wachtell Lipton to design a really uh, clever slash outlandish plan to give non-Redstone shareholders a stock dividend that would dilute the voting power of the Redstones down from 80% to like 17% or something. And of course, that was all challenged in Chancery Court in Delaware.
2: Bill, this timing ended up being really lucky for Sherry and sort of opportunistic because it was around that exact same time that word was coming out that Les Moonves had his own Me Too problems. And in fact, you were, you were one of the first people to break one of those stories. I remember working with you on a story in 2018 about Moonves having sexually assaulted his diabetes doctor at UCLA. Um, I'm curious to hear a little bit more about that from you and also sort of how that timing did work out for Sherry and her effort to oust him and to consolidate control of this company.
3: So I was writing these stories, you know, sort of continuously... Uh, For a few years uh, about the girlfriends, then the George Pilgrim angle, then Sherry trying to get rid of the girlfriends and trying to get back in with Sumner. And so I was, you know, in regular touch at that time with with Gil Schwartz, who was the director of communications for CBS for a long time. And occasionally I would talk to uh, Les and Gil would like call me up. so, So the whole Me Too thing started in, you know, the fall of 2017 with Harvey Weinstein, obviously, and then like Charlie Rose at CBS. And so then, you know, Gil would occasionally call me up and say, you know, I'm sure you're going to start hearing that there's going to be, you know, Ronan Farrow is working on these stories about Les and Me Too and don't believe them. You know, there's nothing to it. I mean, I think Gil really believed that probably because Les was telling him that there was nothing to it. And of course, we know that you know, now that's not true. But uh, so that's what I was hearing. And I would say to him, look, you know, that's sort of Ronan's territory. Uh, that's very, very difficult to root out and very difficult to accomplish. So, you know, I I don't know anything about that in any event. And nobody's talking to me about that. And then Ronan's first story about Les came out. And then probably literally the next few days later, uh, someone contacted me and said, Without giving me much information at all, it sort of became a sleuthing exercise, something about a doctor, or did you know that Les suffered from diabetes and you should look into his doctor? Now, Les had never revealed to his board or publicly that he had diabetes. And so, you know, I did a little Googling and up pops, you know, this woman who's the head of, you know, the diabetes practice at UCLA Medical Center. And I thought, okay, well, this must be it. Went back to my source and said, you know, is this the right name? And the source said, yes, but I'm not telling you anymore. And then I found this uh, article that she had written without using Les's name. And about the whole incident. She had written it in a obscure medical magazine that I came across. And the whole thing sort of unfolded from there over a number of months. And when I confronted Gil with this, basically, uh, you know, we confirmed it with the date books and everything began to check out. And I think Gil started freaking out. And he said, well, if you write that story, you know, here, I have Les's resignation letter right in my hand here. Wow. Bill, since
2: then, and, and you got into this a little bit in your review of the Stuart Abrams book. There has been a, a sort of prevailing industry narrative that's coalesced around Sherry Redstone and her control of this company. Her father, obviously, passed away a few years ago. What do you think is next for
3: her? Well, she, you know, she, she, as we talked about, she got her way. She, the, the the merger was consummated in two thousand nineteen. Basically, though, since then, the stock is down fifty percent the competitive landscape has shifted dramatically. I mean, the CBS, Viacom, which now called Paramount Global, the market cap is, market value is around $14 billion, making it pretty much a bit player uh, nowadays, even though it controls some, you know, fascinating assets, desirable assets. But, you know, know, the Comcast, Disney's, you know, even Warner Brothers, you know, those two are about $200 billion each. Uh, Warner Brothers Discovery is about $100 billion now, I mean, so CBS Viacom, Paramount Global has become, you know, a bit player. And I and I think that uh, Sherry obviously did this, Ben, because she thought it would be easier to sell the combined company to one person, it's certainly easier for her. Rather than doing two deals, she can do one deal uh, easier, probably from a tax perspective to structure a deal that wouldn't result in a big tax bite for her family. They obviously have a very low basis in these assets. Now it's tough. I mean, do people want paramount plus a streaming service which you know has some you know good content but is obviously probably losing money like the other streamers do you want viacom's cable channels some of which are fine some of which are iffy do you want cbs linear tv that is obviously on the decline and you know so it's not an obvious buyer for all of that anymore i mean whatever she was hoping to accomplish Uh, It seems to be she sort of has shot herself in the foot and thwarted that, you know, people who might be interested, like Comcast, who've been rumored to be interested, you know, they are, you know, Comcast obviously owns NBC, so they can't own NBC and CBS, certainly not in this regulatory environment. So that's pretty much a non-starter on Comcast's part. Maybe a, a new administration will bring a different regulatory policy. Maybe the macroeconomic environment will change maybe uh, you know if and when NBCU and Warner Brothers Discovery get together, there'll be a new push uh, catalyst for something to do with the Paramount Global. At the moment, I you know I think you know Bob Backish's plan is just to try to execute better and get some better earnings and get the stock to recover. but it's that's a long process and I'm pretty sure not at all what Sherry thought uh, was going to happen here. It sounds like you think she'll be
2: forced to break up CBS and Viacom in order to sell the company. I mean, there, there's also prevailing speculation that she could be a buyer, too. I mean, she, she's obviously aggressive and ambitious, that maybe this isn't all just about getting the best price for these assets for herself and her family. But do you think it's possible she also wants to be a builder, like her father, and that she, she sees some kind of path forward to grow
3: the company? Mm. You know, if you asked me, which I think is more likely, I, I don't see her buying uh, much. What, what- I mean, she can maybe do some tuck-in acquisitions. Uh, you know, I'm sure our buddy Ari Borkov is uh, got ideas for her. You know, he's her, her banker. But I, I don't know. I don't really see what it is that they could buy or what they would want to buy or what they could afford to buy. You know, not really going to use their stock as an acquisition currency. It's down 50%. Uh, I don't know how much more leverage they can uh, absorb. They probably have got some room on that front, but debt is now expensive. You know, I'm not really seeing that. I think, you know, if in fact, I mean, she's not young anymore. I mean, this payoff for the Redstone family has been a very, very long time in coming. And, and I'm sure that's why she recombined them because she thought that it would be easier to sell. So, uh, you know, I've sort of posited in the past that, Maybe somebody like Apollo could buy CBS because they've already put together sort of a nationwide local television network. And maybe, maybe something like CBS would be a nice fit with that. That would be probably helpful to Sherry uh, if she wanted to sell the rest of it, but probably would result in tax consequences. I think she's in a little uh, tight box that she's got herself in. And uh, I'm not exactly sure how she gets out of it uh, anytime soon.
2: Yeah, it's fascinating. I-, I have no idea either. But, Bill, thanks as always for stopping by to chat about it with us. Thank you, Ben.
1: Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goth, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13, and produced by Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.